Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Tristan, share with me your childhood memories of the Italian-Canadian press. Well, growing up in Montreal, uh, when my dad was living in the St. Leonard part of Little Italy, you know, I mostly remember this this big glossy news magazine called Panorama Italia, full of ads for expensive brands and items and tours for Italian destinations. Where would you see it? I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you'd find at the, say, like Milano, the big Italian grocery on, on St. Laurent Boulevard. You know, you would just find a stand full of them and you'd pick one up. And was it like all about luxury celebrity lifestyles or would you see like people from the community in, in the magazine? It was very community focused, actually. It was very much like local young business people who are making a mark for themselves and they're always well dressed and well made up. And the photos of those people are, you know, quite glamorous. This might be a useful point of uh, distinction and comparison between our respective communities. Like, <laughs> I have very different memories. Our uh, ethnic press, the Canadian Jewish News, that was like the opposite of what you just described. I mean, this was the, the newspaper of last resort on my parents' kitchen table uh, or, or like my Aunt Sylvia's coffee table if I was trying to find something to read as a kid. Like, the paper did not look good. Nobody in the newspaper looked good. Nobody was showing off. Like it was like if if you saw somebody that you knew in the Canadian Jewish News, it was either like um, 
like an awkward black and white blown out overexposed photograph under a headline like Hanukkah concert enjoyable. Or maybe they had just like written an angry rant about Israel for the fourth time. Or you would see them in there when they were dead. Yeah, no, it's nice to hear that Italian Canadians um, had something a bit more upbeat, I guess, to read about themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that was my experience. But in speaking with my dad, he had mentioned that his was something more of a political one and that there were sort of two rival papers in Toronto. When I was organizing the Italian community, I was involved with people who were involved in the Italian newspapers. On the one hand, there was a strong connection to the right wing. So there was an attempt with the second paper to shift it more to the left, if you will, rather than trying to uphold the old Mussolini and the fascist concepts, right? That was Tristan Capiccione, our audio editor, and his dad, Olino. All the times we've looked at the ethnic press in various communities in Canada, like, it's so revealing. Like, the most interesting stuff is usually not what's written, but the stuff behind the scenes. If we dig a little, we, we've usually found all of these conflicts and neuroses of a community that are reflected in the rivalries between newspapers, uh, ownership issues, connections to the homeland, uh, battles between various factions. It's very emotional stuff for immigrants and, uh, and for Gen 2 and for Gen 3, like how they are perceived within their own communities. Very emotional, very personal. And these newspapers, magazines, they're like home base for those perceptions. And I'm talking about this right now because that is the rabbit hole that reporter and writer Marcello De Cintio fell into for us. Today, Marcello is going to take us down that rabbit hole with him through this wild maze that is the history of the Italian press in Vancouver. This is a story today that involves a pro-Mussolini newspaper that the Mounties shut down. This involves a gold mine fraud. It involves the Italian government funding a Canadian newspaper. I don't want to say secretly. I'm not sure it was a secret, but I'm also not sure if anyone knew about it. This story involves a Sophia Loren hoax, uh, a shady publisher of ambiguous origins who a lot of people are trying to track down right now and, and, and who may or may not currently be in Romania. As I said, Marcello fell down a rabbit hole for this one, but he did not do that on purpose. All he wanted to do when this all began was get payback from the people who stole from him. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Lauren Davis, Matthew Rippey-Young, Toby Stevens-Guil, Amanda G., Anna Thorson, Julie Belanger, Sorab Pazuki, and Elliot. I'm Elliot, and I'm a PhD candidate, and I support Canada Land because they have created shows like Thunder Bay and Commons that provide vital reporting on where we are today, how we got here, and what needs to change. I first heard of Giorgio Moretti when he stole one of my stories. In 2015, as I walked past the racks of free newspapers in the doorway of Spolombo's Deli, I spotted a story I'd written on the cover of the rather grandiosely named European Times. The paper had reprinted, without my knowledge or permission, a profile of an Italian bakery I'd written for Swerve. I emailed an invoice to European Times, charging them an unauthorized reprint fee of $500. My phone rang almost immediately. 
and a woman I didn't know started yelling. She claimed the bakers paid me to write the story and had the right to give the story to European Times. This was not true. Swerve paid me. All I received from the bakers was a branded toque with the words bun expert embroidered on the back. The shouting woman also accused me of trying to take advantage of someone with an accent and said if I wanted to see any money, I'd have to stand in front of a judge. So I did. I filed a civil suit against European Times and the paper's owner, Giorgio Moretti. I suspect the woman who yelled at me was Anna Marie Moretti, Giorgio's wife. Moretti dodged all my attempts to serve the court documents by mail or in person, and I eventually secured a court order allowing me to serve Moretti electronically. A court date was eventually set for March 2016. No one representing European Times appeared, and the judge awarded me just under $1,400. I would never see this money. Moretti had stopped publishing European Times and decamped to Vancouver earlier that spring, I decided not to pursue him across the provincial border, but I maintained an interest in Moretti. I learned he purchased another newspaper in Vancouver called Il Marco Polo. And that's how I accidentally became obsessed with the colorful history of Vancouver's Italian press and the role the press had in both uniting and dividing the community. Chapter 1. Vancouver. Open City. In 1955, Pierino Mori and Pietro Minardi drove a truckload of Italian cars from Windsor to Vancouver. En route, the friends bought and read copies of the Toronto Italian language weekly Corriere Canadese. Vancouver's Italians had lacked such a newspaper since 1940 when the RCMP shut down the pro-Mussolini rag Leco Italo Canadese after Canada declared war on Italy. So, in 1956, Mori and Mirardi launched Leco d'Italia, the popular weekly newspaper supported by ads for local Italian grocers, tailors, and taxi companies, combined news from Italy with locally written stories. The paper quickly became a unifying force in Vancouver's Italian community. Mori and Minardi's editorials advocated for improved services for newcomers from Italy, for example, and within the first year of publication, helped establish the Italian Immigrants Assistance Center. But not everything Lecco printed was so serious. Pia Toffini worked for the paper at the time and recalls the events of the spring of 1962. The paper announced Italian movie stars Sofia Loren and Vittorio De Sica were visiting Vancouver and would be arriving by train on the 1st of April. Our phones in the office started so dusk or wild. When is he coming in? Is it for sure? And then they said, oh, we just phoned the railway station and they confirmed it. Because they caught on to the hype and said, it must be true because everybody is talking about it. So they would answer, yeah, yeah, the train is coming in at four o'clock. And then we made a big sign and I had it on, on a stick like this. And I would walk around with the stick, welcome Sophia. And then at four o'clock, I would drop it open and I saw the fish and then I ran. 300 fans showed up at Great Northern Station. Parents dressed up their children in their Sunday best and the Consul General showed up with a bouquet of roses for Lorraine but was all a farce, April Fools. So the whole thing was made up like a real good fake news story. It was the biggest April Fools day joke that anybody has done in Vancouver. There were thousands of people there. All the parents would come with their little kids dressed to the nines, all in their Sunday bests, because they thought they could maybe even get discovered by one of her agents. And all the guys were there. Hair slicked back and with brill cream or whatever they used in those days. 
It was absolutely priceless. It reached the news in Italy. Sophia Loren thought it was a gas. Chapter 2. Il Giudice. The Judge. I doubt good-humored men like Mori and Minardi ever intended for Lecco to end up dividing the community they strove to bring together. But in 1974, the paper became a battleground in a vicious civil war of sorts, a war over the construction of an Italian community center. I reached out to Anna Foschi, a Vancouver journalist with a long history of working for the city's Italian language media. In the 70s, when the local community wanted to build a center, a community center. There were two groups, and one group was led by the new sort of newcomers at the time, and they wanted to build the center. The other group was led by the famous judge, Angelo Branca, and he was probably the most powerful man in the Italian community for many decades because he was a lawyer and then he was um, the first judge, appointed judge to the bench of Italian origin. He was born in Vancouver Island. The parents were Italians, uh-huh. immigra- Italian immigrants, but yeah. he was um, second generation. The war over the center captured the heart of what it meant to be an Italian in Canada at the time. The community was split into two factions. On one side, those who carried disdain for the new notion of official multiculturalism. There are in history, there are moments where it's like a great divide between the past and the future. The people that supported Branca, they were immigrants, but they had come in times and in a culture that asked you to assimilate, to become Canadian, a hyphenated Canadian. And they had embraced that culture. Yes, they were making wine at home, they were making pasta and fiki secchi and pomodori and tomatoes, and everyone has a story about their mom (laughs) or their nonna making, but that is not the essence of a culture. Almost all of the old generation did not speak Italian. The language is not so important, but it's still still a glue that Mm. keeps people together. So they had a very different mentality. That they didn't. They wanted to be Canadians first. Meanwhile, the relative newcomers from Italy and thirteen Italian associations that formed the Italian Folk Society supported building the center. The generation that wanted to build the center had different aspirations. They were more planted in the future. They were already in between. They wanted to be good Canadians, but uh, not to the point they felt their allegiance, their identity was Italian first, Italian old country. That's why they built the center, Mm -hmm. to have a place to go, to have a place where they could meet, they could speak their dialects or language and keep their identity strong. The pro-center camp had the support of the provincial government, but Branca, by then a court of appeal justice nicknamed Il Guadice, or the judge, exercised tremendous influence. 
Everyone knew Branca unapologetically aided the RCMP in rounding up Italian Canadians for internment camps during the Second World War. Vancouver's Italians feared crossing him. Branca also had Lecco d'Italia in his corner against the construction of the community center. Seeing the sway the paper had in the debate, local radio host Rino Voltaggio stepped in. Voltaggio recruited Anna Tirana, another Italian cultural center proponent, and the pair of them decided to start another Italian community paper to challenge Lecco d'Italia and advance the center's cause. In 1974, they launched Il Marco Polo. Judge Branca we just wanted a hall where the Italians could dance and drink and, and be happy. And, and that was the problem. And it was a big battle. So what did we do? We started our own paper. Tarana's dining room table was Marco Polo's first press room. The pages of Marco Polo and Lecco d'Italia became the front line in the battle over the center. Marco Polo ran stories covering the sorts of events the new center would host, while Lecco ran headlines criticizing how the Italian consulate was interfering in local affairs. The two sides sniped back and forth at each other in open letters and letters to the editor. Ideological differences escalated into personal insults and, occasionally, into threats. I used to get calls in the middle of the night that were threatening me, Tarana told me. If the newly founded Marco Polo's primary purpose was to advocate for Vancouver's Italian cultural center, the paper succeeded. The center opened in 1977. Even the opposing newspaper, Lecco, gave the opening warm coverage despite all the preceding ugliness, calling the center a triumph for all Italians. The volunteers who ran Marco Polo, though, were exhausted. Tirana remembers it being an enormous amount of work. She did most of the writing and editing. The load was too much for a single mother already working a day job. It was on my shoulders, she said. Every time the paper came out, it was a miracle. By the end of 1978, Tirana had reached the end of her rope. Four years later, <laughs> she said, okay, now the center is built. The center is in good hands. And I'm not going to, to continue. And uh, so the, the paper collapsed. Lecco d'Italia, though, carried on under a new owner named Rano Azzi and a tiny staff who produced the paper by hand. In the summer of 1981, Anna Foschi immigrated from Florence to Vancouver. She showed up with a typewriter, but little sense of where to go from there. We didn't know what to do, honestly. I was pretty lost. That summer, overcome by a wave of homesickness and nostalgia, Foschi tapped out a story about the rituals of an Italian summer holiday she'd left behind. I wrote one piece. And then I went to the newspaper office that was on Commercial Drive and brought my stuff and I said, what do you think? Do you think you can publish it? And so Aruano took a look and said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, do you think you can pay me something? No, but if you bring me another one next week. I meekly said, okay. <laughs> And I started to write, and um, then he said if I wanted to work at the newspaper, of course he couldn't pay me much, but it would be it would have been a regular salary. I took it, and yeah. I worked there. You know, the newspapers back then, there was no digital edition, so we were doing everything from sweeping the floors to writing articles, interviews, to collecting payments, you name it. This began Fusky's relationship with the paper that has spanned nearly four decades. 
Vancouver's Italian community was particularly active during those first years. You know, the people would buy the paper, sit at the cafes on commercial drive, and then discuss it, and of course argue and uh, curse uh, this or that person. <laughs> but it was life, you know, it was alive. So that's where the importance of the paper. The paper always included news and sports scores from Italy and served to connect Italians in Vancouver with their cultural homeland. More importantly, though, the paper connected Vancouver's Italians to each other. The strength of that paper is the local news. That's the real strength, because you can find an article about the banquet of the ladies' club, and no no other paper would publish that in Vancouver. Uh, you can find, uh, for example, so-and-so are celebrating their 55th anniversary, uh, you know, matrimony anniversary, and a service about, you know, a sort of an article. Chapter 3. New Name, New Owner. The paper operated under several owners during the years that followed, including a decade-long stint as the arm of an international congregation of media-savvy Catholic missionaries called the Scalabriani Fathers. Rino Voltaggio, radio host and head of the short-lived Marco Polo, took over Lecco in 1994. Voltaggio was an icon in the community and seemed a natural choice to head Lecco. Voltaggio immigrated to Canada from Milan in 1968. He mined asbestos and washed dishes in Cassiar before opening the Tivoli Photo Studio on Vancouver's Commercial Drive. Since helping to shepherd the Italian Cultural Center Ennio Marco Polo into existence, Voltaggio had hosted Italian language programs on radio and television and launched four restaurants, including Il Favorito, where he and his wife worked the kitchen. Considering the historical antipathy between Voltaggio and Lecco d'Italia dating back to the battle over the center, Voltaggio couldn't bear working for a newspaper called Lecco. So, within a couple of years, Voltaggio changed the name of the paper to Il Marco Polo, simultaneously burying Lecco and resurrecting the paper's chief rival he'd started two decades earlier. Not everyone wanted Voltaggio in charge. Michele Coviello, the paper's production technician and former editor, stayed on as the paper changed hands and names. By his account, Il Marco Polo quickly started to lose money. Voltaggio had no idea what the hell he was doing, Coviello said. But then in late 1990s, the paper couldn't cover their rent. Coviello remembers Voltaggio summoning him to the Il Marco Polo office in the middle of the night. They packed everything into boxes and shuttled everything to a new building, skipping out on the rent they owed. Coviello recalls other dodgy practices during those years. Rather than selling advertising to raise revenue, for example, Voltaggio exchanged ad space for in-kind services. Reno would get his car paid for through advertising, Coviello told me. Shopping, groceries, things like that, and the income nixed. But the bulk of Marco Polo's revenue did not come from advertising or subscriptions. It came from the Italian government. Italy's Department for Information and Publishing supports Italian language media companies abroad in the form of annual operating grants. Eligible publications must adhere to strict guidelines, among them the rules forbidding portraying women or their bodies in an offensive way, for example. The department website shows that between 2003 and 2015, Voltaggio's last year with the paper, 
Lecco d'Italia received more than 310,000 euros from the Italian government. Nearly all of this funding appears to be paid directly to Bottaggio himself. The Italian consulate issued payments according to, among other factors, the cost of production and the number of hard copies the paper produces. Coviello claims Voltaggio altered printing invoices to exaggerate Marco Polo's print run in order to request increased funding. None of Coviello's claims can be substantiated, of course. Still, I appreciated Coviello's candid recollections about the goings-on behind the scenes at Marco Polo. I was the only one who knew everything, he told me. Not quite. Even Coviello didn't know who actually owned the newspaper. Voltaggio told an interviewer that he purchased Lecco outright in the mid-1990s. According to the BC corporate records, however, the ownership of the paper appears far less straightforward. Voltaggio incorporated Marco Polo at least three times between 1996 and 2000, each with a different company name, different registration number, and different office address. Each company issued separate annual reports to the BC government. Then there was the matter of the Papalia twins and their gold mine. Chapter 4. The Papalia Twins Sometime in the mid-1990s, around the time of Voltaggio's takeover of what was then still Lecco d'Italia, the paper started running curious stories every three or four months about a gold mine at Port Douglas in the BC interior. The mine was owned, or at least controlled, by Robert and Anthony Papalia, identical Sicilian twins who were raised in Montreal and were known for more than just mining. Scotland Yard arrested the Papalia twins in 1977 in connection with a plot to defraud investors through a company claiming to have a gold mine on Texada Island. The twins spent 18 months in jail, or at least Robert did. Anthony escaped from his detention center in a caper the press described as the Great Mafia Escape. Lurid headlines aside, and in fairness to the twins, British prosecutors never provided evidence of any mob links to the Papalia's crimes. The court acquitted them. Five years later, Anthony Papalia was convicted of securities fraud in Vancouver and sentenced to two years less a day, but the appeal court overturned the conviction. Then, in 1988, the RCMP accused the twins of manipulating the stock price of a company they controlled and charged Robert with issuing a false prospectus. The courts eventually dropped the charge, but the Vancouver Stock Exchange banned the Papalias from serving as directors of any VSE companies. The extent of Papalia's involvement with Voltaggio and Marco Polo remains a mystery, but their interest in the paper seems clear enough. Here's journalist Anna Foschi again. I think that maybe there was some gold, but not enough, so people moved up to Alaska back then. Port Douglas became a ghost town, and that is stayed stayed that way for a long time. Somehow the Papalia bought the mine and the rights to everything. The Papalia were connected to Reno mostly because they were Sicilians, all of them. And there is a strong kinship here. This was reflected in the coverage Reno produced for the paper. He published articles, explanations about the history of the mines and how the mine was going to be a really excellent investment. The Papalias were using favorable coverage in Marco Polo to encourage readers to buy shares in their mine, and not just readers in Vancouver. 
they had uh, subscribers in Europe as well and in the wow. States. It was not a huge paper, but it was branching out. It was not just BC. It was also in the interior of the province, not just Vancouver like now. And there are people with money. Then suddenly the Papalias were gone. They just disappeared, Coviello told me. As for the mine at Port Douglas, Fosky doubts there was ever any gold there at all. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Chapter 5 Giorgio Moretti scores a never-ending story. In 2016, Voltaggio sold the paper to someone named Giorgio Moretti, who just arrived in Vancouver from Calgary with Anna Marie. No one in Vancouver's Italian community had ever heard of the Morettis, but I had. The circumstances around Moretti's acquisition of Marco Polo are as opaque as the rest of the paper's ownership history. I heard that Voltaggio, dying of cancer at the time, sold the paper to Moretti on the condition that he would keep receiving the Italian grant money for two years after the sale. In another rumor, Moretti didn't properly read the contract Voltaggio gave him and unwittingly took on the paper's $70,000 debt. Regardless of the terms of the sale, Moretti's arrival at Marco Polo was rough. There was a very, very tempestuous, very stormy period. Moretti's abrupt firing of the paper's four-person staff led to such a fracas, someone called the police. Despite this rocky beginning and my personal grievance with Moretti, I can't help but wonder if he was the ideal candidate to take over Marco Polo. 
In a community scarred by long-established feuds and the sort of petty quarrels that, for example, compelled people to scratch their rivals' names from bocce trophies on display at the center, Moretti carried no baggage. Besides, Moretti's own quirks seem at home with the other outside characters that populate Il Marco Polo's story, like Branca and Voltaggio. Reno was no Stinco de Santo, Foschi said, no Saint's Shin, but Moretti was different. There is something very disquieting about him. His personality can change so, and it's the, uh, the arrogance he has sometimes, and uh, the lack of empathy. On the other hand, he can be totally, totally charming, can give the impression that he would put a red carpet out for you. So I understand your interest, because in his own small dimension, Giorgio Moretti is a fascinating person. In interviews, Moretti gives his birthplace, ambiguously, as Europe. But Foschi told me Moretti was born in Budapest to a Sicilian father and a Hungarian Transylvanian mother. After working with him for five years, Foschi remains unsure what language Moretti speaks. I never understood what language he really masters because his Italian is quite limited. His English is very questionable. Moretti lived in Quebec for 15 years while studying engineering, so he speaks decent French. I'd say it's better than his English, Foschi told me. And then he says that he speaks Hungarian, but not fluently at all. At the beginning of the pandemic, Moretti decided to cease production of the print edition and publish Marco Polo only online. There were no local events to cover, after all, and few people were leaving their homes to pick up copies anyway. Then, in June 2020, Moretti went to Romania. Foschi said he has a house there that needed renovating. Nobody knows when he will return. You have no idea, Marcello, how many people are calling me on the phone or run into me at the Italian stores and ask me, so what is going on with the paper? Is it ever going to sort of come back here? I have no idea because I tried two or three times to ask, I have his, uh, you know, a messenger, I, I can call him or write, but I never get a straight answer. Foschi and the other Marco Polo contributors continue to send Moretti articles and stories via email, and he uploads them to the Marco Polo website. However, the Italian government will only fund newspapers that offer print editions. Without those grants, the paper might not survive. And no one knows what is going to happen when it comes back, because I would say everybody I've been talking to, their opinion is that the Marco Polo will go down. Chapter 6. Fata Morgana. I thought about what Vancouver's Italians might lose if they lose Marco Polo. The need for such a paper has diminished. In the 50s and 60s, Italians arrived in Canada with few prospects, little education, and almost certainly no English. Severed from home, these new Italians bonded with the Italians that arrived before them. They had no one else. Newspapers like Lecco and Marco Polo kept them abreast of what was happening in their adopted community while maintaining a link to home, even if just for sports scores or celebrity gossip. This generation of Italian Canadians formed a loyal readership for the newspaper but their numbers are dwindling. Their children and grandchildren get the news from the internet like everyone else. Italians have satellite television to provide their favorite soap operas and Serie A soccer matches. 
They can watch the nightly news from Rome in real time. And new immigrants from Italy hardly resemble the lonely laborers of my grandparents' generation. Newly arrived Italians remain connected to old friends and family in Italy through technology and social media and don't need to engage with Italians already here. If these new Italians don't need a local community, do they need a local community newspaper? Maybe they do. Foschi said that a constant feature of the community over the years is that everybody has a desperation, an anxiety, a yearning for recognition. Official accolades are hard to come by and medals of honor rarely get hung around blue collars. Nobody bestowed Italians like my grandparents who labored on construction sites and in dry cleaners, any awards. Not everyone can get inducted into the Italian Cultural Center's Hall of Fame or win Immigrant of the Year, Foschi said. She's been awarded both. But the pages of Marco Polo and Lecco before it offer a modicum of celebrity to the otherwise uncelebrated. The Vancouver Sun won't cover the annual banquet of the ladies' club. The province won't run a story about a couple celebrating their 55th wedding anniversary. But the organizers of the Calabria Cultural Society dinner might find their names in Marco Polo. If they're lucky, or especially assertive with a photographer, they might even get their picture in the paper. I wanted to talk to Moretti about the future of Marco Polo. Unsurprisingly, he didn't answer my questions. Aside from Foschi, none of the current or recent writers from Marco Polo responded to any of my emails. Those who knew of my dispute with Moretti distrusted my intentions and didn't want to get involved in what they assumed was a vendetta. Fair enough. But I found the history of a Marco Polo and Leco d'Italia far more compelling than the cheap quarrel that led me there. The paper's contentious past and the personalities involved and the mysteries that remained fascinated me. Many in the community couldn't understand my interest, but Foschi did. Maybe that's the story. It's elusive. It's sort of like the Fata Morgana. Uh, it appears and it disappears. The truth is never set in stone, but that's the story. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, support it. Sale ends soon. Those words just kind of like don't even register. They're so... No, the sale is actually ending soon. A uh, dollar a month instead of $9 a month. So uh, check it out, canadaland.com slash join, or click the link in the show notes. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you'll find a whole bunch of other terrific podcasts that we release. This episode was reported by Marcello De Cintillo and produced with the help of Danielle Paradis. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, once again, we need your support to keep going. And we are offering you a deal we've never offered before, and it's not going to be around for much longer. Go to CanadaLand.com join or click on the link in the show notes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.